0: Furthermore, the equation E is equal to mc squared. And here's the discovery. I'm going to make him laugh again. welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio podcast. I am Isaiah Hankel with Cheeky Scientist. We have a great show for you today. This is the radio show for PhDs who want to get hired into their first or next job in industry and who want to thrive in business. Thank you for joining us. Here we go. Welcome officially to another Cheeky Scientist radio show. I'm Isaiah Hankel with Cheeky Scientist. Today, we are talking about disruptive career strategies for PhDs. Let me make sure I can get the full view here. I might have to do that one more time. Let's see. Are you all seeing me large on the screen? Type in yes in the chat box if you are. Hello, Mega. Good to see you on, Lee. Thank you. Okay. Welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio show. I'm Isaiah Henkel, a Cheeky Scientist. Today, we're talking about disruptive career strategies for PhDs. We have a lot of great content for you today. We're going to be talking with several special guests. Our special leadership guest is Dr. Patty. Dr. Patty Fletcher is a business influencer, author, innovator. We're going to bring her on, talk about leadership success. We're going to talk about her book, um, which is all about disruptive career strategies. Um, We're going to talk about several topics with her including imposter syndrome gender equality lots of great content coming up we're also going to bring on a very special guest for career corner where we talk to somebody a phd like you who is in a specific career path we talk about how they got into that career path what it's like on a day-to-day basis what the transition was like what they do now where their career is headed what the career trajectory is like we will take all of your questions You can call in at any time, wherever you're watching this. You can also uh, ask your questions in either the chat box if you're a member here with us, or you can ask your questions in a comment, uh, in the comment section wherever you're watching this, whether it's on Facebook, YouTube, or other social media, or our webpage. Good to see all of you here, thank you for joining. We're gonna jump right in and and start, I'm gonna start sharing my screen and we're gonna go through a, a few things here before we bring on our special guest. We have, of course, the show me the data section, which is gonna start, um, start the radio show off. Before I do that though, I wanna share a couple of quick things with you. We produce a lot of content at Cheeky Scientist and I wanna make sure that you are getting uh, full access to all this and you know where everything is. So I'm gonna jump on here and show you this screen. That maybe didn't work, that's the wrong screen. Let me try this again. Let's do this. All right. If you can see my screen, can you please type in yes in the chat box for me? That'll just let me know that the share screen function is working. Thank you, Kevin, Sarah, Jessica, Allison. Appreciate that, Tiffany. So I just wanted to bring this up today. We always talk about one thing at the beginning of the radio show that's going on at Cheeky Scientist with one of our programs. So Cheeky Scientist has a portfolio of career and technical programs, and we're spotlighting the Medical Science Liaison Alliance. This is one of our most popular career programs. We only open up enrollment into our programs at set times a year. This is the last day of enrollment for the Medical Science Liaison Alliance program. We've already had about, what, 100 PhDs join this program. Today is the last day, so it's your last chance to get into the program. You can go to the URL msla.cheekyscientist.com to learn more about the program. This program, it's it's really two things at its core. It's a training dashboard uh, uh, you, that you get lifetime access to. We keep adding to this training dashboard as changes happen in the MSL industry worldwide, in the medical affairs industry worldwide. We update this with content. Things that will help you not only get into your first MSL role or your next MSL role, but will help you thrive Um, as an MSL. Everything from helping you create a KOL territory map, uh, things that'll help you get your first job, like attending grand rounds, getting access to MSLs and MSL hiring managers. Um, And that takes us into the second part of the program, which is this private network that, again, you get access to for life. Private network of top MSLs working at Pfizer and Celgene and Johnson & Johnson, every big pharmaceutical company in the world. You get access to them as well as MSL hiring managers so that you know what you need to do to get hired. Uh, So again, go to msla.cheekyscientist.com to learn more about this program. This is our spotlight, uh, the program that we're spotlighting uh, for this radio show. If you have questions on it, you can again ask us in the chat box or the comment box. If you're listening to us on the podcast after the radio show, you can always email support at cheekyscientist.com to find out more. We have a uh, blog uh, on the Cheeky Scientist website at CheekyScientist.com slash blog that has a lot of information, no matter where you're struggling in your job search or your career overall, you're trying to get into your first industry job, your next industry job. You're just trying to figure out what is out there, what's available for you. You can go to this page, CheekyScientist.com slash blog. You can read about resumes and CVs, industry positions, business acumen, networking, interviewing, academic issues, success stories. These are stories from PhDs like you who have transitioned into industry and talk about how they got into their careers, what they like about their careers. So you can start to understand the different options available to you. And then we have special interest as well. Um, Deep dive articles, women in science, um, many different topics are covered here. Our top most trending article right now is use this five part job search strategy to get multiple industry job interviews and job offers as a PhD. You can also read our newest article, find the right industry position for you with this three-step PhD job search strategy. So we're really trying to help you map out a career strategy at this point because hiring is way up, uh, especially for PhDs. We've, talk, uh, we've talked about this number a lot over the past 18, 20 months. PhD hiring is up over 500%. That's a lot of hiring. If you haven't been hired yet, it's not because you're not valuable, it's just because you need to change your strategy slightly. Okay, so. We're going to jump into our show, the first section of our show now. The, this section is called Show Me the Data. We do it at the beginning of every radio show because, let's face it, we're PhDs. We want to see the data. We like talking to people. We want to hear their points of view, but we, we want to know it's backed by data. So we're going to show you a variety of data today. And to do this, we're going to bring on Jeanette McConnell, who's going to walk us through the Show Me the Data section. We're going to have a conversation about what's trending in the dataverse today. Let me make sure I can get Jeanette on here. I think if I make you co-host, the video should work.
1: There we go. Hi.
0: Right. Hello. How are you today?
1: Awesome. Great to be here.
0: Great bow tie as usual. Thanks for joining. Mm -hmm. All right. So we're going to, we're talking today about disruptive career success strategies. And a big part of this is to be disruptive, to get into a career, you have to overcome things like imposter syndrome. You have to see yourself as being able to get into the top careers that are out there not just settling for what you're doing now in academia, but in industry, right? You know, do you have anything to say before we get started? Why, why are you excited about this? Show me the data section.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm really excited because like you said, it's a bit, there's a lot in there. We're going to go over a couple of different topics. Um, and I think it's really important for us to realize that no matter like what you're thinking, like sometimes if you go back to this data, you can, can get over those barriers that you're facing mentally, right? To look at the actual numbers i think as phds that's really important right look at the data and just get over whatever mental blockage you're having mm. um and i think we as phds can do that sometimes other people struggle but we really can take that data and its face value and believe it you know more than others can yeah
0: yeah No, i was just reading a book about how we have these two sides to us and this is not groundbreaking right but our emotional side and our logical side but when it comes to certainty, we really use these two things very, very differently. And I think as PhDs, we rely on logical certainty a bit more, not as much as you might think, cause we still get emotional. Like we still think, well, I'm not qualified for this. If it's something is outside of our domain, especially we will feel this in sense of imposter syndrome. But at the same time, we're also better able to overcome emotional blockages with logic. Right. So as a PhD, you have to know that, you know, a lot of the the data that we review is on purpose to help you, you know, overcome any challenges you're having in your job search to show you that, hey, look, it doesn't have to be that big of a deal. Like you might feel a sense of uncertainty or fear or whatever, but you're actually very, very valuable. You have all the tools you need. Um, You just have, you're not looking at things in the right way. And so that's, that's what we're going to go through today. And Jeanette thought we would start with some data about the MSL career track for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's one of the most competitive career tracks to get into, and most PhDs don't think they're qualified for it. They think, you know, and this is where the imposter syndrome comes in, they think that, oh, I need clinical experience, Mm -hmm. right? Clearly my PhD is not enough. I need clinical experience, I need to be highly trained in this drug pathway or on this drug, I need to be an MD or a PharmD, because that's who traditionally has been hired into MSL roles. Not true though. What What do you say, Jeanette?
1: Yeah, no, it's not true at all. We see PhDs get hired out of grad school into MSL positions, right? It's, mm. it's all about how you present yourself, right? right. It, and it and doesn't, you know, you're qualified with your background, no matter what it is, yeah.
0: Yeah, and what we're going to look at here is showing you that it's not. it doesn't come down to your technical skills, your mm. clinical background, et cetera. It's not, that's not what's required. You can learn all of that. As a PhD, we talk about it a lot. You're a doctor of learning. You can learn that. The first thing you have to wrap your head around is these companies actually want you. We were talking to uh, Yuri Klatchkin, who's a MSL at Celgene recently, and he just he told us that uh, last week, Lilly Pharmaceuticals hired five PhDs with no experience, no industry experience, no clinical experience, no experience at all in the drug pathway, anything, because they knew they could get them on, get them trained, and they, they, that's how high the need is for PhDs in MSL positions. In fact, I just learned this, there's more PhDs as MSLs now than there are PharmDs or MDs. PhDs are the new MSLs. So if you're a PhD, you haven't considered this career track because you thought, oh, it's too competitive. It's one of the highest paying careers out there for PhDs. It's actually the fastest growing scientific career right now. Uh, you are qualified. And to show you this, we wanted to look at this. This is a survey of medical science liaisons in the pharmaceutical industry. It's from the, the URL is journals.sagepub.com slash a bunch of things. We'll put the, uh, the link, specific link in the show flow notes. So if you're listening to us on the podcast later, just come to the blog article that'll be out with the, the radio show highlights in a week or two. Uh, so Jeanette, walk us through this. There's, we see a, a set of bar graphs uh, or an overall bar graph with lots of bars. And then on the, the x-axis are percentages, 0% up to 100. And then on the y-axis is a list of activities. So what, what are we looking at here?
1: Yeah. So they surveyed these MSLs and asked them, what do you do? Like, what does your role include? And this is the list they gave them to choose from. So how many, and then the percentage is how many of those people that were surveyed said, yes, this is something that I do in my role. Right. Right. And we talk about this all the time, but the biggest thing that MSLs do is they build relationships with key opinion leaders. And that is on the top of this list, 100% of these MSLs said that that's what they do. Right, and as a, I think it's just so important to like highlight that, one, that's not a technical skill.
2: <laughs> right.
1: And two, it, it is your ability as a PhD to speak to these key opinion leaders at their level because you have such a strong background um, that makes you really well suited for this role, right? Um, and then the other things on there, I just thought they're really, they sound really fun, right? So it makes you, it reminds you how, why this position is highly sought after. You know, things like um, scientific advice activities, right? That sounds really cool. Delivering scientific presentations, Um, you know, working with different organizations like promotions and marketing presentations, like all different stuff that you get to do in this type of role. Um, I just thought that was pretty cool.
0: Yeah. And so, I mean, again, look at the, the list here, like Jeanette said, relationship management, education activities, right, Uh, advice activities. I mean, all three of those have to do with basically just teaching and learning and talking to people. Um, You know, in in, in this case, the KOLs, the key opinion leaders, are other, you know, MDs, uh, you know, other leaders in the field, sometimes Mm -hmm. they're referred to as thought leaders. You know, speaker training, advisory boards, resident training, it's a great career. A lot of these don't have to do with having some sort of technical skill. It doesn't have to do with, you know, your ability to, you know, set up a chromatography experiment or do a Western blot or anything like that. It's, can you learn stuff and then talk about it intelligently? And we see medical science liaison roles expanding, not just in the pharmaceutical industry, but even into the biotech, biopharmaceutical industry. Um, there's a clinical liaison, they're, they're called many different things. An application scientist role is actually very similar to a medical science liaison. It's just for more strict biotech where there's not as many regulations because the patients aren't involved. Again, it's a very popular career track. You might be thinking, oh, one day maybe I'll get into this. No, you can get into this today. You're highly in demand. You don't need industry experience. You don't need a visa, right? I mean, you need one, but a company will sponsor you. Uh, you don't need clinical trials experience, and you don't need um, training in that drug or that pathway. You, you can get this on your own. You can get the training that you need, get access to a network, and you can get into the role. You don't have to go to school for another four or five years. So we want to stay on this topic of imposter syndrome, but we're going to dive right into the actual some some data on the syndrome itself. Uh, The this particular figure that we're looking at is a national study. It says 62% of adults experiencing imposter syndrome, or 62% of adults experience imposter syndrome at work. If you look at the data about imposter syndrome, it's pretty overwhelming that most people experience it at some point in their life, especially in their career. I think a lot of you have probably experienced this. Actually, tell me in the chat box. How many of you have experienced something like imposter syndrome where you didn't think you were qualified and made you less confident and hesitant? Who's experienced that? Type in me or yes in the chat box. Verena says me. Jeanette says me. Uh, Laraz, Hami, uh, Sarah, Tiffany. Thank you. I experienced it in grad school because I didn't work in a lab. Like a lot, of, a lot of undergrads will work in a lab for a year or two before going to grad school. I didn't. And so I just kept waiting for somebody to tap me on the shoulder after I got into grad school and say, psst. You don't belong here right we've all that's the kind of you know i waited for somebody to like come back to my my lab bench and see a note on it saying you have no idea what you're doing and we experienced that at at i think our most intense moments before we get up to speak about whatever right this is why public speaking is so fearful because you don't feel qualified to do it um so that just kind of gives you an idea of the feeling of what imposter syndrome is but if we look at which career tracks experience the most imposter syndrome in this figure, the results can be pretty surprising. So the subtitle here is percentage of workers who have experienced imposter syndrome in the past 12 months versus the industry that they're in. The industry that they're in is listed on the Y-axis, the X-axis is again, 0% up to 100, but really the highest highest value here in terms of the bar graphs by industry is 86.96%. Jeanette, walk us through this. What's at the top, what's at the bottom, any surprises?
1: Yeah, so I think the first, things take away from this is that nearly all of these industries, it's more than half, Mm. right? The only industry that it's lower than is like leisure and sport. So people who play sports, they're pretty (laughs) confident, (laughs) but everybody else, all of the other industries, it's more than 50% of people in those industries Mm. have experienced some form of feeling unqualified or like they're a fraud, that they're going to be found out that they're, you know, they shouldn't be in this role. Right, and so there is, the healthcare one in there, it is like 70% people in healthcare are feeling like this. Yeah. The other one that I thought would be relevant to our audience, there's environment and agriculture. We have a lot of environmental um, science. Uh, it's kind of a growing big field right now. 78% of people in those fields are feeling this, this way. And so yeah. I think it's just really important to know that if, if this is happening to you, you're not alone right? Mm. Tons of people are feeling like this. And yet, people still make really incredible things happen in these industries, right? So it's like, despite, or maybe because of this, right, whatever the the relationship is, it doesn't matter. um, That, that if you feel this way, that's okay. Mm. It's, it's just basically a part of being like human. (laughs) That's like my, you know what I mean? Like it's, you can get over it, but to realize you're not alone.
0: I, I, I agree. And, uh, you know, for this, it might be helpful to take out the outliers. Okay. So you have like the creative arts, you know, theater, this kind of stuff. You, you're on, you're performing a lot. So that makes sense. It might be very difficult. The other end, the, the leisure, sports, tourism, if you take both those out, like Jeanette said, it's between, you know, 53% and, and about 78%. So uh, a very large portion. I also wanna call your attention to look at look at number three, information research and analysis. That's the closest to you as a PhD. You're like third from the top, okay? It's 78, over <laughs> 78%. Actually, it's tied for the second highest. So, uh, it, what's it called? There's a there's something that's the reverse of imposter syndrome where it's like the less you know, the more confident you are. Something, e- e, it's- Ignorance e- is
1: bliss. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's exactly what it is. Yeah, it's, But there's a different study where it, like it's a chart where the more, that you, the, the more that you know, the less confident you are, and the less that you know, the more confident. It's called E and D something. Somebody can look it up here. We have a bunch of PhDs on here. But it's the reverse of imposter syndrome. If you're in information, you're in data, looking at it constantly, you're going to realize how little you know. And because of that, if you're not careful, you can make the mistake of losing your sense of value. Okay? It's, very, it's one thing to, to, to know that you don't know everything. It's another thing to think that you can't learn anything okay do you see the difference there like you are capable if you don't know something you can find it out a lot of you spent you know this is a big thing uh, a big portion of what you learn in graduate school right the ability to say i don't know but i can find it out by doing this or this is how i would do the experiment Mm -hmm. thank you jasmine and mary dunning kruger i knew did i say e and d okay that's close dunning kruger effect look that up it's pretty amazing uh anyway so just take just know that if you're feeling this way it's not your goal shouldn't be to never experience imposter syndrome or to be a little bit afraid or insecure or intimidated. Instead, you should just say, Oh, this is normal. That's just normal imposter syndrome. I'm going to do it anyway.
1: Yeah. I want to share a little tidbit about this. So there's a really great story from Neil Gaiman. If anybody knows who that is, Um, he's a famous author, but he was at an event and he was speaking to someone else who was named Neil. Right at this big event where all these like famous people were, and they were talking about how they both sort of like felt like they didn't belong. Like, these people are all so successful. Like, I can't believe I'm here with them. Right. The other person he was talking to was Neil Armstrong. (laughs) Right. So, even Neil Armstrong is feeling this like, I'm not qualified to be with these successful people. (laughs) So, I just want to put that's like one of my favorite little tidbits about this topic is that it's so prevalent. And I think that really helps with understanding and working through
0: it. Yeah, great point. And if you see it, like most things in life, even stress overall, I was watching this video about how this amazing study came out showing that if you have high levels of stress, you're more likely to, you know, have these negative things happen to you unless you see stress as a positive. And then you're less likely to have these things happen to you. So it's kind of like imposter syndrome. You have imposter syndrome. If you realize that, okay, that's normal, and it can actually sharpen you and make sure that you don't get lazy, then it's gonna to be to your advantage. Because if you don't have that sense of imposter syndrome, it might, might just be easy to, to wing it. You have a big event coming up, a big interview, a big talk, I'll be fine, no problem, right? Because you can get uh, overconfident. So if you see imposter syndrome as just a checks and balances for you, and you take action when you fill it, it, it can work to your, your advantage. I'm not speaking from experience though. Um, <laughs> next figure. We have, uh, we have a, a lot of great guests lined up. So I want to make sure we have time to get through this yeah. though. So we might go a little bit faster through these last figures. This one is global, a global leadership forecast. Research insights to fuel your people strategy. It's at ey.com publication. We'll put the link in the post show notes. Jeanette, what are we looking at here? Because I see on the, again, on the Y-axis, different traits, motivation to lead before asked, served in a leadership position, et cetera. And then I see percentages in the bar graphs. Can you walk us through this?
1: Yeah, so they asked people who in leadership positions um if like what experiences and motivations that they had and they found the ones that they had in common. And so what I like about this graphic, we can look at it from the lens of you don't need to be something really specific to, to be a leader. You don't need to have this specific technical skill or this specific background, right? The number one thing that all those people had in common is that they had the motivation to be a leader. Right. So they wanted to lead, they wanted to take on like a bigger position or a bigger role. And that is the biggest common denominator between these leaders. And I think that's really important to note. It's not that they were the most skilled, it's that they wanted it.
0: Yeah. And, and like you said, we tend to think that being a leader is something magical. Yeah. Like you have to be the best at XYZ technical skill. Like you have to have the most publications, right? I'm speaking in terms for PhDs here. Any, whatever credibility indicator. It's not though. Look at the first one is just initiative. Do you (laughs) wait for permission or do you just like take action to lead by example? Um, Do you have any sort of mentoring? Like if you helped your friends get through stuff, are you a parent, right? Are you formal, all this kind of stuff. I mean, and I I think Jeanette's hit, hit the nail on the head by saying this just shows you how simple it is to gain leadership experience. It's not something magical. It's not like another four year degree things you've likely already done, and you just have to apply that to your professional career too. Okay, my favorite chart out of all of them here, I love this. So this is, I don't even know how to describe this, basically on the, the, the Y-axis you're looking at, some, what's more sought after by leaders, like type of leadership training? The, the Y-axis is more sought after by the leaders themselves, X-axis is more sought after or heavier used by organizations. Yeah. So as a job candidate, you get into a career, whatever you have going on, you're going to want to train yourself to get better at your career, to become more of a leader. And then companies are going to want to encourage that too, but there's very, they, have, they value different things. And so in the middle is where the, those two meet. Like there's a diagonal line, you know, a linear line showing the, where they meet. I'll give you an example of some, some of the differences. So in organizations, they want to use books and articles and self-study to help their Employees get better at leadership because probably it's cheap it's easy, whereas the individual they want personalized help, coaching from external mentors, on demand training, both organizations together right the the things that are highest on that linear line, formal workshops and training courses and seminars, things that are externally developed. What does this mean jeanette how, how can How can we use this to prepare ourselves for career and industry where we can keep growing in our career yeah
1: I, I like this figure because one it sort of shows you what might be offered to you and what you'll have to like seek out on your own right and like what if you're in a position these companies might be trying to help you grow your leadership by giving you these things but maybe they aren't quite working so it's important to look outside of your job and keep networking keep growing your own personal like self and network instead of just relying on the company that you work for to do that for you. Right. And I also think if there's some good ideas in here, right. So like maybe it's something you haven't thought of yet. Like you haven't been like, Oh, maybe I could like coaching from employees. I know it's pretty low down on the list, but right. Like maybe you can try to get an employee at your company, like become kind of like a coach for you. Mm. And so I just thought that was really interesting. These new, like new ideas for ways to grow. Yeah.
0: I really, I really like it. I, I would, I would take a look at this. Um, whether you're listening by audio later or uh, you just have the link. It's a, it's a great, great figure and I think we'll return to it um, in the future. Last uh, topic here, this is something that we'll talk to our first guest about, um, the impact of greater gender diversity. So we're seeing an infographic here essentially, Jeanette. 1.7X mm-hmm. for leadership strength, 1.4X for sustained profitable growth and 1.5X for stronger growth culture. What, it, what does this mean?
1: Yeah, so this is just highlighting something that I think there's been quite a bit of research about how the more diverse that your company and your leadership is, the better a company does, right? They are more profitable. They are better to work at. (laughs) It's like all over that. It just makes a better environment that ends up being more profitable. And so this is just focused on gender diversity, right? More gender diversity means better leaders, better culture, better growth.
0: Right. So overall, I mean, everything from profits to culture to whatever. If you have more gender diversity, the company's better off. Yeah, totally. Awesome. Thank you, Jeanette. Please do me a favor and thank Jeanette in the chat box or the comments for her help on the show me the data section. She prepares this data and comes on and talks about it. She's the expert. Thank you, Jeanette. Okay, we're going to move right along now. We have a very special guest, Dr. Patty Fletcher. I'm very excited to talk to her. she has an incredible background uh, her book is incredible and her website's incredible look at this uh, we help leaders change the world this is dr patty here uh, if you haven't figured that out uh, some data on the front of her webpage we love that right check out her website go to dr patty fletcher dot com. for those of you listening by audio and you can check out the the website here there's articles insights Um, ways to contact Dr. Patty. You can check out her book, too. We'll put the links for both of these in the chat box and in the comment section. Her book is Disruptors, Success Strategies for Women Who Break the Mold. And this is a a highly rated book. Definitely check it out. You can get it on Kindle, audiobook, and paperback. A little bit about Dr. Patty. She was included in the coveted 18 Women to Watch in 2018 by Brown Brothers uh, Harriman uh and by brown brothers and Harriman. uh dr patty is an internationally sought after speaker seasoned tech executive award-winning marketing and business influencer board member angel uh and investor uh angel investor maybe maybe both dr patty has appeared on the nasdaq cheddar bloomberg and greater boston um among other uh media she writes for entrepreneur.com inc The Guardian, Forbes, and The Digitalist, and has contributed or been featured in Time Magazine, Real Simple, Al Jazeera, Forbes, Fortune, Newsweek, The Boston Globe, not over yet, The Muse, The Huffington Post, and many more. She is the author of the best-selling book, again, Disruptors, Success Success Strategies for Women Who Break the Mold. Uh, Again, you can go to Dr. Patty Fletcher or where a lot of us hang out on LinkedIn. We'll put the LinkedIn link there for you. Definitely connect with her. Show her how engaged PhDs are. Make sure you tell her thank you for being here with us, Dr. Patty Fletcher. I'm gonna make sure she can start her video here. Should be able to turn it on now, Dr. Patty. Let's there we go.
2: There we go.
0: And I'll hide everybody else. How are you today?
2: Great. How are you?
0: I'm good. Thanks for being here with us. I really appreciate your time.
2: Thrilled to be here. And you know, seeing my face so big from my <laughs> watching going, thank God for airbrushing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> your, uh, your website's great. I really, really like it. It's um, oh, thank you. very, thank very, you. very professional. And uh, your background's incredible. And we're really looking forward to having a conversation with you about a lot of the topics we kind of set up in the in the show me the data section. So again, thanks for being here.
2: Absolutely. I hope so the- we get to talk about that last stat um, yeah. that you talked about around gender diversity because I, I don't agree with it. So I, I think wants oh, there, yeah, yeah. I'd love to talk about
0: that. Fantastic. No, this is good. I think um, anytime we have somebody say they don't no agree with the data, we get excited as PhDs because yeah. we know a good discussion is coming up. Well, to set that up, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about your background, and I really, you know, we always want to know like why you got into what you're doing. You know, why did you get into uh, success and coaching and working with you know uh, tech companies? Everything that you do what was What was your path and, and what led to you ultimately writing your your book
2: yeah it's a great question i um, my first grown up job was in enterprise software and um, got you know, it's funny hearing you talk about imposter syndrome, because I, I think I probably still have it. Uh, but um, so I was hired into this job that I was so underqualified for, for because nobody like sent me the memo saying women are supposed to get hired for their experience, not their potential. I, you know, missed school that day, right? So um, I took this job instead of taking the class, which is another, you know, cliche comment people say about women. And it was around HR software. and It was pre-Y2K. So everybody's making money and everything's great. And then there was HR, right? And so going in and, and really kind of getting this intersection between technology and how we manage people and organize people. And HR was in the basement in the windowless office. Nobody talked to them, right? They were an afterthought. And here they are, really managing and being responsible for the most important reason that you succeed or fail as a business. And back then, people weren't thinking that way, but it was pretty obvious. So I loved that intersection. I loved working for an enterprise software company, getting this real understanding that My goodness, if these systems go down, industry goes down, GDP goes down, right? So really seeing that and seeing the impact on changing how we work and therefore how we live and all that fun stuff. Hmm. Um, Fast forward. A bunch of years, and by then it wasn't just HR software, I started working on big data before big data was a thing, and a lot of that predictive analytics, getting past just looking backwards, you know, from reporting and, and moving forward and seeing how we can use, essentially at the time, transactional data or enterprise data to solve some real big people-based problems. So I go back for my PhD because I wanted to learn how to research like a scholar, and some of this is in my book. I have this very big fascination with my maternal grandmother who helped to raise me. My mom was a working mom before working moms were a thing. And so I spent a lot of my early years with my mom's mom, who I knew very little about. I knew she was orphaned in the um, genocide with the Armenians, but I didn't really know a lot. Well. And so I, I, my MBA research did nothing for me. So um, I was going down a path of just learning how to research like a scholar, studying that more technical stuff that I was focused in on. And about a year, year and a half into my dissertation proposal, which as a PhD, you know, I mean, that is terrifying, right? For me, it was it was scarier than the actual research itself. And I, oh my God, I freaking love my oral defense. I thought that was like being on a stage. It was fabulous. So that to me was, you know, pretty crazy to get that far into a topic, take this class around feminist leadership theory, learn about Carol Gilligan, learn about the challenges that we have, seeing all of these ways in business that we have defined what success looks like, who gets to be successful, how do we get there, what do successful decisions look like, and seeing how that through a gender lens, a few things happened. I realized I was the dumbest person ever because I never really looked around the room and went, okay, I'm in tech, where the heck are all the women? Because that was my normal, right? And so that was a challenge. And then looking at the time, and this was in the mid, kind of early 2000s, um, that all of the research out there had the glass ceiling and technology intensive industries at that kind of VP level. And I love boards for many reasons. So I ended up switching my dissertation to study women who help order director positions in publicly held life sciences and technology businesses. So few of them then. Um, life sciences is way better. Tech, not so great. We've kind of gone the other way. But wanting to understand how these women who were a few generations before me, how they were hacksawing their way to where so few people went. And at the same time, because I grew up in enterprise software and enterprise software really forces you to create a a systems view of things where you say ask questions like, huh, so the world this system lives in is extremely diverse, we have really no one race in the majority at this point women were 50 51 percent of the workforce in most economies um we were coming up to having the five generations at work right all of those different demographic things and of course the pervasiveness of the, the third industrial revolution um at the time and seeing, gosh the way that we have run our businesses the way success looked like all of those things i learned that were based on all white men right being those research participants it doesn't quite fit anymore right what makes this possible to have this disparity to have this imbalance of power and it really set me forth and at the same time i'm hearing from ceos going oh my god we don't have the talent we need today and dear lord we don't have the talent we need tomorrow there's a shortage of talent and yet here i am looking at all these incredible women, incredible people who were not Caucasian, right? All of these folks who were in the other and the other represented populations, who were highly skilled, highly qualified, not just intelligent and all that, but capable, right? And had those networks and those things you bring to the table for those influence jobs And, and just wondering why. Why is someone not really talking about this in a way that doesn't blame and shame men, doesn't point fingers at underrepresented populations and say change to be more like what we believe success is? And instead, let's look at the system. Let's understand where those unconscious biases are why they matter, where they matter, and what we can actually do about them. And that's really the reason for the book, to get away from the blame and shame, to get away from let's bury our heads in the problem and the name calling instead of let's actually figure out what's going on and how we can entrepreneur our way out of this.
0: That's great. So I really like the focus on the system. It's something we work a lot with as PhDs, right? Protocols, methodologies, et cetera. So I want to talk a little bit about, you know, the individual side that holds people back, but first I'd like to talk about the system before yeah. we drill down to that. So what what were the the gaps in the system or where was the system broken?
2: There are so many and let's let's just do the board for fun, right? The board sure. is so, and, and by the way, the glass ceiling is, is absolutely critical there. We know that. And at the time, I really believed that's where it was the most important. Looking at work by Elizabeth Cranfield, who you're probably familiar with, and her work that she did, I'm um, sorry, Elizabeth Kellen, and her work she did at Cranfield University, which really placed that glass ceiling at that middle manager level, ultimately changed my viewpoint. But, but in the policy, decision-making, industry-making level, at the board it's really interesting when we look at board decisions and when people are earmarked for c-suite and board we see that it's typically between the ages of 40 and 49 and it makes a lot of sense right that's when you've had a lot of experience a lot of failure a lot of success you have grown up with a population of people who are filling out those influencer seats who are people who be your next customer your next board member so it makes a lot of sense but here's the problem that doesn't work for women It works for men, but it doesn't work for women. If we have children, that tends to be when they need us in an ad hoc basis. It's much easier when your kids are small. If you are part of the sandwich generation like I am at that point, you're also taking care of your parents. You work three shifts. You go to work. You come home. You take care of the house. And because women have to constantly prove themselves, which is a a system issue thing, we're smart enough, we're smart enough, we're tending to, to spend that third shift in our day educating ourselves. And so our cup essentially runneth over. in talking with these women, and this was something planted back in my PhD dissertation studies, going, wow, so our system fully believes that it's between the ages of 40 and 49. No one ever stepped back and asked, why? People are living longer, they're working longer than ever. Why not do this? Sure, start at 40, but be okay with women who are 50, 51, 50, men who are 50, 51, 52, right? Because it's not just just women. But it, that's an example. where We have this just unconscious bias, the status quo, of, well, that's when we look. But it doesn't reflect really the world we live in, how long people are in the workforce, and when we can accommodate something like being on a board or being in a C-suite position.
0: No, I love that example because it shows that by looking at a system in a different way, you can change it. And you, it may not make sense, but nobody's ever looked at it. So actually I wanted to drill into that just just a little bit because of our audience. How can you suggest people look at the systems that might be influencing them if they've never looked at them? Like how did you know to look at that system? So how, now once you realize it's the system, what kind of questions do you ask yourself? How do you start probing the system and testing it and and looking for, for ways to improve it?
2: Yeah, and it's such a good question, and it's a hard question because this is a topic that's very passion-based, right? And everybody has a story on this topic, whether they're totally for it like I am. I have my my long story that started before my mother was even born, right? Yeah. with my grandmother and being the voice of people who don't necessarily have a platform or voice. For others, they're adamantly against it because so-and-so didn't get a job because they were passed over for whatever affirmative action thing. So everybody has a passion for this, and so that's the first thing. It's very easy. The world we live in right now is a name-calling world, right? We're doing a lot of this regardless of where you are, and I, I know that we're all facing that, and it's not political. It's how we are, and that's a tipping point challenge, and I think most of us understand that, but when we continue to focus in on this or this, right? then we don't actually focus on the problem. We get caught up in all the rhetoric. So the system, the content, is really the safest place. We are all victims of the world that we live in. So how do we question that? One of the easiest things to do is to look at something that's not very passionate. So remember a few years ago, big deal, but not passionate from the the same kind of feelings perspective. A few years ago, you might remember in Hawaii, someone in the military pressed the wrong button and sent out this big, right? That big alert saying missiles are coming, right? And anyone who's ever been to Hawaii has been to Pearl Harbor knows how terrifying that is. You are 6,000 miles away from civilization, six hours away from any other landform and you think missiles are coming at you. Well, it turned out it was a mistake. So what did we do? We stepped back, the military stepped back and said, What made that possible, right? And what made it possible was nobody went back in and engineered an off button, right? Or some kind of a QA process. Mm. It's the same thing look at the world around you, we can go through it all. Let's see. According to McKinsey, if women were paid, just the women in the workforce were paid equally as men are today, it would add $18 trillion to the global economy. This is an economic imperative. Knowing that women reinvest 90% of the revenue that they make in the world around them, oh my God, it's an economic imperative, right? and we can go through those all the different demographic stats, whether it's gender or anything else. And then we look and we see who's in charge, who holds power, who has the influence, who has the purse. Women, by the way, control 51% of the wealth in this country, 80 to 90%, like I said, of all consumer buy decisions. We have so much power, we're not in power. It's the same question we asked in Hawaii. What makes this possible? So I, if I'm going to hire for a role, and I see him suffering, suffering from what my friend Adam Quinton, who's a VC, calls a mirrorocracy. That's how he describes the Silicon Valley, right? A hire people who look like me, think like me. And if you see that, if you're going for a hire, if you're going for a job, and you see everyone looks the same, although the company says, I want diversity, which you know, let's definitely talk about why I had a challenge with that research um, topic, um, and yet it's not diverse, you gotta ask why. So I hear a lot of the time, well, Patty, you know, I would love to have more women in the, the top level of my organization or women in influencer positions or people of um, who are not Caucasian or LGBTQ, but I tried, can't find them. Hmm, what makes that possible? Chances are you're going to the same rooms, talking to the same people about the same things, using the same words and expecting a different outcome. So always ask yourself that question. You want to have a... a population that you're working with that reflects the population who you want to have buy, read, whatever it is, the stuff that you're doing, and yet the people around you don't don't look like that, you have to ask yourself why. What am I doing that's different than I did yesterday? Chances are not very much, right? So you have to go out there, and it's, you hear people talk when it comes to diversity and inclusion, you hear them talk about the word intention, and that's critical. You intentionally have to go out and seek members of underrepresented populations, whatever they might be, gender, LGBTQ, different able, it doesn't matter. You have to go to them. Because in their world, their unconscious biases, well, that door is already closed to me. Because of that meritocracy, they don't see anybody who looks like them, who welcomes them. The words you're using in your job descriptions don't reflect words that they would use for themselves, right? or words that your search engine would look at. So really stopping and asking yourself. And I'm so happy you asked that question. What we're talking about here is ultimately unconscious bias. There are 150 different unconscious biases that play at our brains at any given time just at work. The only thing research has shown us that combats unconscious bias is decision interruption. I spend a lot of time looking at the use of technology on decision interruption in the workplace, Mm -hmm. but us forcing ourselves to say I want a different outcome, I keep getting to the same outcome, what's making this
0: possible? No, it's fantastic and I I think it really Clarifies things from the organizational perspective from the system perspective, but what about the individual's perspective. So if we flip it to the other side. What kind of personal responsibility does the individual have uh, an underrepresented individual um, that's feeling imposter syndrome, for example, uh, to overcome that like if there's an opportunity there. If employers come out and look for them at the end of the day that person, that PhD has to step up. Like we have a lot of international PhDs, yeah.
1: Sometimes
0: they just feel unconsciously that they, could, they can't get a visa or they don't have the same opportunity, even though they, they can and there's companies hiring them and the data shows in, in, in some cases, um, they still feel that yeah. imposter syndrome and they don't try. So what, what can they do to overcome that? What can they do to seize the opportunities when they present themselves?
2: Yeah, and it's it's a really good question and an important one. And and going back to what you you and Jeanette were talking about before I joined, everybody has imposter syndrome, right? Except mm-hmm. for some who don't, and those who don't, you gotta question them a little bit. So imposter syndrome is really important. And me, I'm a disruptor. So a disruptor, and that's who I talk to, and scientists tend to be disruptors, right? And disruptors Mm. for me in the way that, that I would define disruption is you see a status quo that's no longer working, it's inefficient, it's ineffective, doesn't provide value in a meaningful way. And you have to create a new status quo, right? So you're a disruptor. That's what you do as a disruptor. You assemble people to do that, and that's great. So as a disruptor, taking the job you've never taken before, doing something unprecedented, you can't help but feel imposter syndrome. And guess what? That's a good thing. As a disruptor, you have to. Because ultimately, what you're you're thinking is, oh, crap. I haven't done this before. Who am I to think that I can do this? They're going to find out. Well, guess what? When someone hires you, they already know what they're getting and and if you are a woman and in that position, you should feel good about yourself because you're bucking the system. We are conditioned as humans to believe that if a man doesn't know something, he takes a job. If a woman doesn't know something, she takes the class. So that's, and for me, I've always taken the job like we said in the beginning. So I suffer from imposter syndrome, that's number one. Number two, focus in on competence instead of confidence. So confidence means that I've done this before. You're doing something unprecedented, whether it's for you or someone else. Instead, so you can't have confidence. Instead, think about competence. You are a scientist. Mm. Your job is to break stuff down, right? the scientific method. Ask a bunch of questions. And then you ask more questions, and more questions, and more questions. That's the competence you have. Breaking down something that's extremely complicated, complex, something that you're probably going to bring your unique perspective, build onto the wall of knowledge there. You have what it takes. And I have to tell you, I I coach a lot with women who are new CEOs or new board members. They have careers that are 30, 40 years long. They've done incredible things. And yet they suffer from imposter syndrome Mm. because they forget that when they were brought onto that board or brought on a CEO, those board members knew what they were getting. They don't feel you need to have the confidence. They just want you to have the competence to figure it out. Everybody needs to understand you have the competence to figure it out. Start from where you are. That will get you to where you need to be. And that's really the topic around equity. Just like you want to, not equality, because equality assumes that we, if I give you and I the same access, right, the same door, we're going to have the same desired finish line and have the same journey there. It doesn't work that way. That's not how it is. You have things working for and against you. I have things working for and against me. Equity means I'm going to meet you where you are, understand your journey's different, and give you tools in order to overcome whatever unique barriers you have and all that fun stuff. Do that for yourself as well. Start from where you are, take inventory of what you must know and what other people can help you with, right? Bring in their skills and just go for it. And I know folks like to say fake it till you make it. In my experience and in my research, that actually feeds more into imposter syndrome because ultimately what you're doing is you're faking it instead of saying, this is who I am. This is where I'm starting from are the problems that I see, right? The, the, the wisdom of not knowing is a good thing, especially as a scientist, right? We're not biased against anything, but trust you have what it takes. You are a scientist. If anybody can figure it out, you can figure it out.
0: Excellent. And, and my last question, I want to come do a two-part question because I want to tie in that figure you talked about. So we showed this, this infographic that basically said the more gender equality that you have, the more successful you will be at a company in terms of profits and culture, et etc. Um, why is that true or not true in your mind? And then how do we use any kind of knowledge we get about where things are now to help us make decisions in the future and, and where things are going in the future?
2: Yeah. And I think, you know, because I'm a scientist and a word person, right? And you are as well, right? We both talk for a living. Um, We know the importance of words, just like Mm -hmm. there's a distinction between equity and equality. I can't stand Mm -hmm. the word empower. That's not my job is to empower you, right? It's about enablement. It's the same thing with diversity. Diversity does not equate to better returns, better innovation. All diversity is, is being counting. I have this many who look like this, this many who look like that, this many who look like that. Inclusion is about culture. It's about having those practices that those middle managers, the people responsible for deciding who comes into your organization, how people get developed, who gets promoted up to the next level, right? that's where your drop off rate is, typically in an organization, and therefore they're responsible for the culture. For them to be able to, to be so inclusive that we get to the next thing, which is belonging. 72% of the world of the world reports is unhappy. 89% of the workforce around the globe reports is disengaged and has for the last 10 years. Why? We live in a one-size-fits-all world that fits one very 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 small population of people. Going back to all that system stuff we talked about right and what we learn when we study business um, at the scholarly level. And so Instead of thinking about diversity, because quite frankly, it is a reality, it's not an option, right? You don't have a choice. Let's instead look at the culture and go from, I am able to to not only provide the programs and education, but those reinforcement mechanisms, the new tools for the people responsible for hiring, managing, to be able to manage and lead differently, Hmm. to a point where I look in the mirror and I say, I belong here that is what the difference is between financial outcomes and innovation outcomes. Because what happens when I feel like I belong? I'm going to do my best work. I'm going to bring my whole self to work. That has nothing to do with diversity. You're going to have diversity, but it doesn't mean people are at right layers. It doesn't mean they're going to stay. And it certainly doesn't mean they're going to be engaged and give you the best of what they have. It's a nuanced question.
0: I see. So it's a, so what's bringing that profitability or the success of the company is giving tapping into every different type of individual's identity, essentially, so they feel like they belong to something greater.
2: That's right, and, and it's a challenge, right? So wow. I tend to work with, absolutely, I work with startups, but the majority of my career has been with the, the Fortune One Thousand really big companies lots of them are really old companies and even the newer ones like google right amazon they have a lot of challenges real bro culture it is very hard to shift culture we all know what drucker may or may not have said about you know culture eating strategy for breakfast but it's ultimately true Hmm. and so it's really really hard to change those cultural constructs to go from exclusive to inclusive to go from inclusive to you belong to go from you belong to i belong but it can be done and it goes back to i saw someone in the, the feed going i like entrepreneur as a verb but that's exactly what it is and that's what's important by the way on this topic the folks who are on the other side right so you you're a white man right you fit this kind of profile of what we believe success in a ceo looks like and there are lots of men who fit that profile who then feel quite victimized quite frankly and, and, and i understand that i understand that psyche it's been pretty difficult, right, for, for certain folks to, to feel like the finger isn't being pointed at them. And that's not what we want, right? That's not what we want at all. And so, to be able to have it where everybody is able to make these decisions, to be included, to feel like they belong, is important. And we have to be able to entrepreneur and understand that where what's a problem over in this part of the organization is not going to be a problem somewhere else. And for people like you, for me, anyone in the workforce, to not see that my leaders have done it perfectly, but they are trying, they are looking at the data, they're exposing the data, they're giving transparency, they're seeing that this might work here but not over there that's okay we're not going to figure this out for a long time our systems are very very old but we have to start somewhere Hmm. and that's it's really exciting stuff
0: thank you so much dr patty please do me a favor and thank dr patty in the chat box so i showed your website and your book is there anywhere specifically you think this audience should go to to connect with you
2: um definitely check me out on twitter um oh Uh, Yep, PK Fletcher. Um, I'm really active on social. Go to my Facebook page, Dr. Patty Fletcher, and on Instagram, Dr. Patty Fletcher. I respond, so check me out. Ask me any questions. And um, also, of course, check out my entrepreneur um, articles. I'm always looking for, for new topics. I like to bring forth people, women who are disrupting the world and our male allies who are doing the same.
0: Perfect. Thank you, Dr. Patty. This is Dr. Patty's Twitter page, so you can connect with her there on LinkedIn as well. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, if you haven't done so yet, please thank Dr. Patty in the chat box uh, or the comment section wherever you're watching this. Really, really appreciate her time. Great discussion. Are you a PhD student or postdoc who wants to get an industry job? Are you tired of being paid one third or less of what you are worth in academia, but you don't know where to start? Maybe you've been uploading resumes over and over again, but you haven't heard anything back from an employer. Go to phdsgethired.com and get our free materials on how to get hired in industry. All you have to do is go to phdsgethired.com Put in your name and email address, and we will send you our resume guide, our networking scripts, and our other free trainings to help you start your job search now. Again, just go to PhDsGetHired.com. We're going to move right forward uh, to our next guest, Matthew Jefferson. So Matthew recently transitioned into a medical science liaison role. So we're going to bring Matthew on here in one second. I'm just going to introduce him. We're going to move right along here. We still have a lot of ground to cover. So Matthew. He has an MSL at Villa Bio. Uh, he is supporting the launch of a first-in-class cl- first therapy for neuromyelitis optica, NMO. He earned his PhD in neuroscience at Iowa State. Hey, I went to Iowa University, but we'll get along. Don't worry. Uh, he has a background in basic neuroimmunology research and an immediate expertise in neuroinflammation and neurodegeneration. Uh, he currently lives in Ames, Iowa with his wife, Amanda, and there are now three- Is this Corgis? I gotta gotta know what that is, Matt. Uh, Emma, Ellie, and Edgar. So you like the word E. This is Matt's LinkedIn page. If you haven't connected with him yet, Matt is a Cheeky Scientist Associate. He is also a member of the Medical Science Liaison Alliance. He's in an MSL role now. We're really, really uh, happy to have Matt on with us. Let me make sure I can get your video going for you, Matt. That should allow it. Please do me a favor and say hello to Matt in the chat box. Because there he is. Good to see you. Thanks for joining.
3: Hey, absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Isaiah.
0: Yeah. So I want to jump right in with you and talk to you about this career track. Well, first, when did you transition? How many, how long ago was it?
3: So I actually, I finished my degree in December of eighteen, and I signed and I started on March 25th.
0: Amazing. So I just want you to all know that, you know, we all think that there's some reason we can't get into the job that we want right now. It's not true, uh, especially in this hiring market. So Matt went right from getting his PhD into an MSL role.
3: Not messing around.
0: Not messing around. Yeah, two years ago, people, you know, you'd say like that's impossible. But right now, especially with how many MSLs are needed, this, this, is, this is possible for you. So, so Matt, you graduated. You know, before you graduated, you started your job search. Let me, let me rewind even further. Why did you start considering the MSL position? How did you find out about it? How did you learn more about it?
3: So it's sort of for me, it was, it's, you know, I sort of had a dovetailing, you know, I, I had an interest in the CSA, Mm -hmm. and then right around the time that I sort of learned about the CSA, and, you know, I was on the mailing list, I was reading the information, and I was like, oh, man, like, these people kind of seem to represent the same message that, like, I sort of feel, you know, and I, I, you know, I felt like, felt like they were dirty little thoughts, you know, in academia. It's like, oh, I, I shouldn't feel that way, but I do. Hmm. Um, you know, and I had, when I started to explore career options, uh, you know, the MSL role popped up. Um, and right about the time that I was getting exposed to CSA material, I had reached out and done an informational interview with someone. Um, she was a, a local MSL did, a, you know, did the faculty stint and right. she amazing. Um, and really, just sort of it sort of solidified my interest in the role. And from there on out, I just, you know, I officially joined the CSA, and then I I was committed to doing the networking. Um, and then it obviously it paid out for me. So,
0: what well, what was challenging about the process of you know learning about the medical science liaison role and starting like when you were first starting to make your way through your 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 job search? Um, what were some of the initial challenges you had?
3: You know, I had. I had time on my side, fortunately. Hmm. You know, I started the process early enough. Uh, what felt maybe apprehensive for me at the time, still being in graduate school, I was like, well, I, I got a while until this happens. You know, hmm. how do I, maybe, how do I stay motivated to keep making progress so that one, once I do finally finish, you know, will I actually be able to successfully make this, you know, hmm. what felt like a quantum leap?
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that feels, I think a lot of the people watching feel like it's a quantum leap, even if they're in a postdoc, whatever else. So what, what, what did you do looking back to keep yourself motivated despite that instead of saying, well, I have, you know, cause I, what I see happen to a lot of PhDs is they think they have an unlimited amount of time or it's too far. So they just wait and they procrastinate and they wait yeah. till like their day before they defend and they're going to be unemployed <laughs> or they start trying and then hit some roadblocks. Right. And they face some rejections and they just quit making progress. So what did you do to stay on track?
3: the informational interviews for me were overwhelmingly motivating you know i would i mean like like too many of us i i had a tumultuous phd experience you know did had the clinical depression all that you know all that fun stuff wow and it you know connecting with others and hearing you know that the grass truly was greener on the other side it kept me hungry it kept me motivated um You know, it was like a free dose of Prozac talking to an MSL who said, yeah, just, you know, make it through the PhD. And once you get here, it's the best job in the world. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and I really, I believe that I had the confidence in myself. And I was like, no, I, you know, I can add to an organization. I can add that value. Wow.
0: Um, Well, it's quite a turnaround. So, I mean, you mentioned, I don't ever like to gloss over when somebody mentions that they went through about a depression, you know, clinical depression, in your case. Because I think a lot of PhDs experience that. We've seen the data. What, what, what brought that on for you? I mean, if it might have been a combination of things, but I'm just curious was there a certain point in your graduate school career where it seemed really heavy? Is there something that, that happened? Can you tell us? I mean, if you can tell us a little bit about it, it'll make the people that are going through it now know oh, yeah. the way out.
3: And I usually, I never, I, you know, it, it's not awkward to me to talk about. I don't ever stray away from it because, you know, why should you? You know, sure. some. Some people might get the misperception that, oh, you must have had a rosy, supportive Ph.D. experience and you just magically made this transition. But no, hmm. it, you know, it can be a dogfight personally and professionally. Hmm. Um, you know, mine started for me about halfway through my Ph.D. I had an advisor who I, I think is a good person and she believes that she believes she does good. Um, but she's she, in my experience, she was terribly emotionally manipulative. Um, you know, would consistently move goalposts, just absent-minded. So you start to kind of get lost. Um, you know, I was not in a big lab. I, I was my lab for a couple of years until I got one other lab mate. Wow. Um, you know, we're, we weren't a financially equipped lab. So you you know you, you don't feel like you're making an impact. You don't feel like you're moving anywhere. You really start to question, you know, why am I actually doing this, you know? And And, you know, those, those feelings can hurt.
0: Yeah, no, I appreciate you sharing. And I think why this is so important, because if you, if you're from a small lab, I mean, one person, two person, like in Matt's case, you have an advisor who's not doing the best job mentoring you. Maybe you feel isolated. Um, Maybe you feel like most of us, you know, that who have got, gotten our PhD, that goalpost is always moved and you can't plan ahead for your future. You can't plan for career success because there's no, there's no, there's no milestones. Um, you're not alone. It's very common, but like Matt, you can turn it around. Okay. So no matter what you're facing, you just have to get access to the right people and know that talking to people is motivating. Don't allow yourself to be isolated. In Matt's case, it was setting up informational interviews with other MSLs in the, the MSL Alliance program, um, or talking to other PhDs who had transitioned into industry that's going to help your career and it's going to keep you motivated because it shows you that there is, there is actually a goal poster milestone. You can get to the other side. You just have to, you know, fight a little bit to make sure that there's smaller milestones to get you to that big milestone. Matt, I really appreciate you sharing that. I want to talk a little bit about the interview process. So yes. every career track's different. What did it look like for you? Did you have a phone screen then a video interview, a site visit to walk us through what, what the steps looked like?
3: Yeah. Uh, so recall, for the,
0: Sorry. Oh,
3: absolutely. So for like, for the interview process for MSLs, like all the information that we kind of get exposed to, it's, it's very accurate. Hmm. Typically there's a phone screen by HR, you know, they're checking basically does this candidate have the, have the hard skills on paper, you know, and do they sound like a human being that, you know, someone would like to talk to. You have a phone screen, then usually you have a video or a phone interview with the hiring manager. Maybe there's, you know, one or two people you have to talk to. Um, and then with any luck, then you can get to an on site. Um, and then once you're to an on site, you know, you're down to to three or four people for that spot. So you are you're you are absolutely in the chase at that point. Mm. Um, and that, that was the case for me. I I thought I was gonna be able to leave the summer before, um, but given the PhD difficulties. I wasn't able to get out soon. I started to connect with recruiters in the summer that I thought I was going to be able to graduate. Um, you know, and they were like, Well, when are you done, Matt? It's like, Well, I'm not going to, I don't actually quite know yet. So I kind of hit the pause button and I was like, You know what? I'm going to get closer to knowing that I'm done. Um, so I kind of hit the pause button for a couple of months. Hmm. And then I defended in November. Right around the time that I finished my defense, then I started to reconnect with my network, you know, saying, Hey guys, I'm actually entering the job market. Um, you know, what's, what's sort of the beat on the street, um, with companies and hiring. And then I started to connect with recruiters and to continue to expand my network with new connections. So, you know, I really, Mm -hmm. I hit the ground hard for, for, you know, two and a half months. Um, I was getting phone screens, um, you know, fairly regularly. I was applying to positions mostly through internal referrals. Hmm. All I think in the end, I had four sites scheduled. Wow. I, I went to three of them. Um, all of them were through are from referrals. Hmm. Um, and of the three onsites I did, I, I got one offer, one rejection, and then one we like you, but we want you for another territory. So we need to interview for those. So
0: that's great, and and that's a big part of. I mean, so so Matt has an advantage because he's in the our advanced MSL uh, alliance program, so that he gets access to the MSLs. But he's also in the association, the cheeky Scientists Association, which is our flagship program that has over 7,000 PhDs. So the advantage is having access to that network because it means you can kind of start to build these relationships and talk to people even if you're two years away from graduating. And then when you're ready for the job, what Matt said around two months is exactly right. I mean, we see six to 12 weeks of really hitting the, the, the ground hard like Matt said, which really just means making sure that you are, um, you're doing, going through that power networking phase where you're following up informational interviews, asking people for leads, asking them to, to hand in your resume or to use their name on, on a cover letter, et cetera, and all these things start happening together and that's where you're really putting all of your focus into those efforts. Then you'll end up like Matt did with uh, four different site visits and uh, multiple offers, ideally, that you can leverage against each other. Um, Matt, are you, you're okay with Matt, right? Or Matthew? Oh, fine? absolutely. Okay, uh, I forgot to ask. So last question, what does it look like now? You're on the other side, How does it feel? Is it better than you imagined? Is it everything you thought it would be? What what are you doing on a on a daily basis? So I guess I'm looking for like how does it feel, the mindset, and then what are you actually doing?
3: From day one, I felt instantly valued. Mm. I love my team. We are a really diverse team. Um we we all bring something very unique and different to the table and we all have our own sort of background and perspective. Mm. And I'm you know, I get to be our science nerd. And that works for me because I am a science nerd. Um, you know, anytime, you know, hey, Matt, you know, lecture us on basic, you know, neuroimmunology. Awesome. Mm. You know, when I'm meeting with with KOLs, we call them K-E-E's or keys. Drives me nuts there, K-O-L, but that's just different terminology. Um, you know, when I meet with those people, I leverage my background. I say, you know, hey, you're the clinician you treat these patients you know i come from a research world you know here's kind of how i think about the disease and you know the patient perspective you know what can i learn from you um you know how can we work with each other
0: fantastic and uh yeah i just think you're such a great example for for everyone watching if you've gone through a tough time you're in that tough time just keep going through it applying the right strategies getting access to your network Th- those key principles that, that Matt, Matt just told us um, and you'll come out on the other side. Okay. And tap into your current network. If you, if for those of you that are members in the association, um, you know, make sure that you're, you're leveraging that to your advantage. Matt, thank you so much for your time. Congratulations on your recent transition and your career success.
3: Thank you very much, Isaiah. Appreciate you guys.
0: All right. Please do me a favor and thank Matt for his time in the chat box or in the comments section. If you haven't already, this takes us to the end of the public portion of the radio show. If you want to watch all of our radio shows, get alerts and updates when we have a new radio show, get access to our articles when they come out. You can go to phdsgethired.com, put in your name and email address there. That's the easiest way. Go to phdsgethired.com. You can also just go to our website, cheekyscientist.com, download one of our training guides. We have a free resume guide for PhDs on that homepage, cheekyscientist.com, that you can download as well. That'll put you on the list and you can choose to have radio show updates sent to you. This particular radio show will be on the podcast soon, within a couple of weeks, and the highlights will be up on the blog at CheekyScientist.com blog. Thanks, everyone. Remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. This takes us to the end of another Cheeky Scientist radio show podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you want to learn more about transitioning into your first or next job in industry, just go to phdsgethired.com. Go to phdsgethired.com. We will send you all of our free training materials that will help you start your job search now or help you take it to the next level in business. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. (laughs) We'll <laughs> be